ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. car I ever owned had no air conditioning. When summer came and it got too hot, all you could do to try and cool things down a bit, well, all you could do was wind down the window. There was a fan, of course, on the dash, but put that on and you just got blasted with warm air. Today, even the cheapest model car comes with aircon. It's become so ubiquitous that car designers have factored out the very idea that anyone would drive with window down. If you try and do it, particularly on a freeway, you get that terrible buffeting sound that pretty quickly forces you to wind it back up. Then there's the aircon we use at home. And in the office, it too is fast on the way to becoming indispensable. Around the world today, there's almost 2 billion air conditioners in use. And in total, that accounts for nearly 10% of global electricity demand. So it's a fast-growing area for understandable reasons, but has real implications for energy and environment issues. Brian Motherway from the International Energy Agency. Every second somewhere in the world, 10 air conditioners are sold. It's a huge, fast-growing market, particularly in some hot countries where we're seeing growth of more than 10% a year. So between now and 2050, we expect the total number of air conditioners in the world probably to triple. Has air conditioning, has it been uh, you know, a blind spot, if you like, when it comes to electricity consumption? I very much think so. To a certain degree, first of all, because in certain markets, everybody owns air conditioners. In other countries, virtually nobody does. And and to be frank, people don't really think about the cost of running air conditioners. Even people who buy them tend not to think about that when they're choosing which one to buy. So I think it has been a real blind spot. When we talk to governments and explain just how much electricity air conditioners use and will use in the future, they're often quite shocked to realise just how big a sector it is. So finding ways to better cool our homes and offices is an imperative. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to Future Tense. Now, you might assume that the hottest countries on Earth have the most air conditioning units. You might assume that. It's understandable you would, but you'd be wrong. Right now, two-thirds of the air conditioning market in the world is concentrated in the US, Japan and China. And those countries certainly do have hot regions. But if you compare that to the close to 3 billion people who live in the hottest parts of the earth, where ownership is less than 10%, markets like India, more like 5%, people suffering 40-degree heat for many months of the year and simply can't afford air conditioning. As those countries become richer, as temperatures go up even more, that's where we'll see the real fast growth in people owning AC. So there's an electricity consumption issue, but there's also an issue around inequality then. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of people take air conditioning for granted. They realize they can just press a button and be cool no matter how hot it gets. For billions of people in the world, that just simply isn't true. And it's a basic factor of their health and well-being that they can't afford the kind of cooling and comfort that some of us take for granted. So the catch-22 is that the more we try to cool ourselves down, the more we contribute to heating up the planet. And as the planet gets hotter, well, the more aircon we'll need to cool ourselves down again. Of course, air conditioning units today are better engineered than in previous decades. But 
air conditioners are becoming more efficient, but the core technology has not changed. And what's really striking, if you look around the world, in every single market, the range of efficiencies you can buy an air conditioner for. If you go into a shop today and look at 10 air conditioners, literally some of them will be twice as efficient as the others. And that's because people don't really think about efficiency. The manufacturers, the retailers, and the purchasers don't really prioritize efficiency when they're buying an air conditioner. And therefore, the range is really, really wide. And and it's quite troubling then because people are buying air conditioners that are a lot less efficient than they could be if they simply chose another model. Is design an issue here? A lot of our houses are built so that there isn't flow through in the way that they used to be. Is there really a need to actually start rethinking the way we design our houses and our uh, motor vehicles? I think you're absolutely right. In terms of the overall energy efficiency, the overall energy use of being cool, the house or the the office or the car are just as important as the device itself. They basically contribute the same in terms of of how much you can save in terms of of money and electricity. If you build a much more efficient house, if it's better insulated, as you say, if it's better ventilated, you know, if you've got decent shading, so it's not just the house, it's the street, it's the city, it's the environment, all of these things make a huge difference. And we do tend to forget we often, you know, build homes that we haven't really thought about the insulation. So it's exactly the same if we're thinking about heating a home or cooling a home. The better insulated the walls are, the better insulated the windows are, the more of the cold air we can keep inside and then the less money we waste. Which brings us to architect Sandra Pischik in the Netherlands and the idea of rediscovering vernacular architecture designing buildings in direct response to the local climate and taking into account local traditional building materials, the direction of wind patterns and even simple old-fashioned ideas like shaded walkways and verandas. Historically, people constructed buildings that could breathe. So there was always a way for the air to be circulated in the building. We didn't build, people didn't build sealed buildings like we have today as a result of globalization. And they see that these buildings, you can't open the window because of the curtain walling, et cetera, et cetera. So the vernacular buildings were always breathable. We like to think of ourselves as modern and we like to think of the design of our cities and our buildings and our cars as modern. In that process of modernity, have we lost sight of some of the important clues about how to live with nature? Absolutely, absolutely. Climate change and the heat waves we're experiencing in cities are telling us that we need to find a way to adapt. And this adaptation process needs to happen very quickly. We talk about adaptation perhaps in the context of lands or, or coastal areas, but we need to do that in architecture as well. And there is a lot to do with stylistic change that perhaps needs to happen. So using some of these principles, but redefine the stylistic change that needs to happen as well. And can you adopt those traditional approaches? Can you adopt them on a large scale if you're looking at a city, say, and trying to retrofit? Again, I would say we would, but I would go back to this sort of DNA of vernacular cities generally. It might be difficult to retrofit, actually, to be realistic, yeah, because obviously, you know, we have to think about the market and the forces of the market. But there are things that are realistic that we can do, which is, for example, green spaces. Plant as many trees in the cities as we can create public spaces. And this is needed not only because of climate change, but we recently just are coming up from the corona pandemic. People need to come out and think how we can live again in cities that provide health and well-being for all of us. 
there are multiple reasons why we kind of need to rethink and go back to some of those fundamental principles to make those cities livable. But I think, for example, when it comes to elevations and the material treatments of some of these buildings or whether we paint the roofs white or plant something on the roofs, there are all these little measures that holistically would add to allowing us to live in a more habitable cities today. Over the last couple of years, we've seen a predominance of glass towers, glass skyscrapers. Now, they have enormous efficiency issues, both in regulating heat and cold. Why is it that architects and builders continue to build these types of towers? You know, this is a result of globalisation. Right now, there is a term that we are in a globalisation 3.0. And of course, the aspect of copying and pasting of architecture has been quite damaging also for local cultures, for example. There is a big responsibility right now with the awareness we have and the consequences of building this type of architecture that something different needs to happen. I think apart from the kind of conscious, professional consciousness that we need to have as architects, there is also issue for legislation. And here, this is a cooperation also with local governments, people establishing planning laws that certain type of architecture should be simply prohibited. Again, I put the word globalization and how architecture is conceived. So you see it's conceived in a, probably in architecture offices in front of computers. The vernacular was conceived in land next to uh, nature or a tree or some sort of habitat. So I think it's uh, almost um, unlearning what we've learned, how we construct buildings in a kind of new way. There is a movement of sustainability happening. People are trying to think in a different way. And I mean, there are many examples of really nice contemporary Australian architects, for example, in the bush or elsewhere that needs to happen. So it's probably cheaper on the short term, but on the longer term, the cost of livelihood is profound. So, you know, we need to slowly or, or quickly introduce some of these older principles and progress research and development, progress education, also the way how we teach people architecture in school. So it's a kind of a holistic package that we need to engage with. Dr. Sandra Pishik, and as well as being an architect, she's also the author of Habitat, Vernacular Architecture for a Changing Planet. And you're listening to Future Tense. I'm Anthony Fennell, cooling our lives without further heating the planet. That's our topic today. We've seen a huge change in the last few years, partly because I think, you know, due to the work of ourselves and others, we've made people realise just how significant cooling is and it is getting more attention. But of course, in these times in particular, whether it's driven by desires to decarbonise our electricity systems or particularly in 2022, when we know the cost of energy all over the world is very high, affordability is a real issue. There's a real focus more than ever, I think, on how we use electricity, how we use energy more generally. And governments and cities are thinking about what they can do and they're realizing that cooling is a really important area because it's not just about how much electricity it uses all year round but in many cities in the world now on a given hot afternoon air conditioning might be half as much as the total electricity demand it's a real driver of pressure on electricity systems a driver of higher costs so it's definitely getting more focused than ever before which is very welcome The importance of minimum energy performance standards. I know that your agency has talked about this in the past. Are governments listening? Are they starting to put into into place these kind of standards? 
It can sound a bit mundane sometimes, Anthony, when somebody says, how do we make sure our conditions are as efficient as possible? And the simplest and most effective way to do that is to put in a minimum energy performance standard. So say to manufacturers and retailers, you can only sell AC that's above a certain level of efficiency. In countries that have done that, it's been hugely successful, not just improving the efficiency of the AC in their own country, but also helping them be more successful in terms of exporting technologies, becoming a, you know, a regional trade leader, you know, getting a, a kind of a lead in terms of, of advanced technologies that they can sell elsewhere. So minimum energy performance standards have been really successful. And it is true that most countries in the world that are significant users of air conditioners do have at least some standard in place. But in all cases, it could be stronger. Often the standard is just simply set too low. Maybe it was set some years ago. Maybe it was set in a very conservative way. So in some cases, it still allows quite inefficient technologies to be sold. It still doesn't really protect the consumer from inadvertently buying something that's going to cost them more to run. So standards can really work, but they've got to be strong. They've got to be well enforced. They should be revised frequently to push them upwards. When done well, they can really make a difference. From your experience, how innovative are the the makers and designers of cooling systems? So there's kind of two halves of this story, Anthony. And one half, I'd say, in a lot of cases, AC, as I said, is a fast-growing market. Ten air conditioners sold every single second in every part of the world, mostly consumers not really factoring in efficiency when they're buying them. So on one side, the incentive to manufacturers is just to keep making and selling the same kind of devices. And, and you know, there's a lot of money to be made in air conditioning these days. On the other hand, with this greater focus on efficiency, whether it's driven by the cost, whether it's driven by greenhouse gas emissions, we do see a lot Lot more focus on innovation. We see some really interesting brand new technologies coming out that would really could really disrupt the market if they become mature. Right now, a lot of them are in early stage, but we see a lot of exciting innovation in air conditioning. And of course, not just in the devices themselves, but also in, as I said earlier, buildings, design of cities, design of systems, use of district cooling. There's a lot of interesting opportunities. And because the market is growing so fast, there's a lot of money to be made for somebody who can really crack cooling in a much more efficient and environmentally friendly way. Well, can I get you just to take us through a couple of those innovations? So we see quite new technologies that I still find a little bit mind-blowing in terms of like the use of magnetic cooling that has no greenhouse gases in it at all. That is a totally different system. We see much more integrated technologies, particularly driven by artificial intelligence, digitalization, where it's much smarter design in terms of working with the building, understanding when the user wants to be cool, not cooling down parts of the house that are not in use, only cooling down to the required level. Sometimes quite simple changes that can really change efficiency, but particularly now that users can have much greater control over their cooling system, you know, through a smartphone app or, you know, devices can detect when there's people in the room and when they need to be cool. So just just thinking about how we use them, how we manage them, how we can control them can really make a difference. And then we see these breakthrough technologies that are fundamentally rethinking how we do cooling and the kind of technologies and solutions that we might be seeing in the future. One such innovator is Ashwat Rahman, an assistant professor of engineering at the University of California, Los Angeles. It's a funny thing because, you know, in one sense, air conditioners as they are today are kind of amazing, right? Our ancestors would have marveled at this box that seemingly blows cold air in our faces and all you have to do is, you know, press a button and it does it. And so I think it is worth appreciating that the reason air conditioners work the way they do is that they're doing a pretty good job today, right? They're they're not terrible. And they've been incrementally getting more efficient with each passing year. I think 
part of the issue with air conditioning and a lot of related technologies is that, you know, we as consumers tend to be pretty price sensitive, right? We're often going for the cheapest unit we can get. And so that does not necessarily encourage or incentivize manufacturers to innovate a great deal on efficiency. But that's changing. I think customer demands are changing. What people are looking for is changing as well. And and so that's certainly part of the story here is that, you know, we as consumers have a role to play as well. Dr. Rahman, like Brian Motherway and Sandra Pishik, believes we can't rely on aircon innovations alone if we're serious about bringing down energy consumption levels. So his recent research has focused on ways to reduce the need for air conditioning in the first place by adopting a process known as radiative cooling. Radiative cooling is actually a natural phenomenon that happens all the time. So it's most easily observable by your eye during the evening hours, especially if it's relatively cloudless night. If you were to go and measure the temperature of your roof or any surface that's facing towards the sky, you'd find that it's actually a fair bit below the air temperature entirely passively. So that sky-facing surface, uh, let's imagine it's your roof, could be as much as 5 or even 10 degrees Celsius cooler than the air that surrounds it. The reason that happens is that that surface that's looking up at the sky is actually losing some of its heat all the way out to the upper atmosphere and even space. The way that's possible is due to a basic property of nature, which is that all materials actually emit their heat away as a form of light. For you and I and for our roof and all kinds of materials that surround us, this is occurring in a part of the spectrum that we can't see. It's something that's called the infrared part of the spectrum. And so if you're a roof or any kind of pavement outside at night, you're looking up at the sky, you're sending out more heat to the sky than it sends back to you. And so you're able to stay cooler than the air temperature because of this effect. Many ancient cultures actually used radiative cooling centuries ago to create ice in the desert and in environments where the air temperature itself never reached freezing. And so it's it's been this property of nature that we as humans have actually observed for a very long time and even taken advantage of. But it's never really emerged as a practical commercial technology. The central thing we've been able to do is make radiative cooling accessible not just during the nighttime when we might observe it naturally, but also during the daytime when we need cooling, whether that's an air conditioner or refrigerator, that's when we need it the most. It's in the middle of the day. The reason radiative cooling is not normally observed during the daytime is the sun, right? If you're outside looking up at the sky, you're also going to face the sun, especially during those hot summer months. And the sun tends to heat up most naturally occurring materials more than enough to counteract the cooling effect. You know, your natural intuition is if I put something outside on a hot sunny day, it's going to heat up. It's certainly going to be warmer than the air temperature. But what's remarkable is that if you were able to create materials that are extremely reflective to the solar part of the spectrum, that is to say they reflect most of the sun's energy, then the cooling effect that naturally occurs at night would also persist during the daytime as well. So that's what we've done. We've created different classes of materials that are extremely reflective over the solar part of the spectrum, but they're also very efficient at emitting their heat away as this infrared light to take advantage of the radiative cooling effect during the daytime as well. 
and those materials aren't intended to be a straight replacement for air conditioning in future, but a supplement to conventional cooling technologies. There's a couple of different classes of materials we've explored. So the first are what are referred to as optical thin films or multi-layer films. So they kind of work on a similar principle to anti-reflection coatings that might be on your eyeglasses today, except we're targeting very different optical behavior. We're trying to create something that's a really good mirror to sunlight, as well as being a very good emitter of heat at this infrared part of the spectrum. And so it really comes down to designing kind of these artificial materials on a layer by layer basis. And these layers can be, you know, tens of nanometers thick, so really, really thin. So that's that's one class of material, and that's shown great promise. It's something we've also tried to commercialize with our, our, our startup, SkyCool Systems. And so that's, you know, I, I think has already been proven in the field as being something that works today. What's also possible is we might be able to use paints and traditional coating-based approaches to also achieve this radiative cooling effect. So if you think about a white paint, you might wonder why if I paint something white, you know, doesn't that accomplish the same thing I was talking about earlier? The problem is most white paints don't reflect enough of the sun's energy to actually achieve this cooling. So we've been developing what we're calling super white or super cool paints. So they're, you know, reflecting 98%, 99% of the sun's energy. And those are able to achieve this cooling effect as well. So that's still more in the research and development phase, but that holds potentially great promise for building scale applications in the future. Ashwat Raman from the Department of Engineering at UCLA. So far in this program, we've looked at issues around energy consumption. But there is another aspect we haven't discussed, and that's the environmental impact from air conditioning coolants. Hydrofluorocarbons, known as HFCs, are currently used right around the world. While they were once seen in a very positive light, that perspective has changed in recent times, as climate and energy advisor Kristen Tardonio explains. Your listeners may remember when the world came together to negotiate the Montreal Protocol on substances that deplete the stratospheric ozone layer. And in so doing, the world heralded into existence the most successful environmental treaty that ever was. And it has uh, succeeded in reversing ozone decline and helping heal the ozone layer. Those CFCs, those ozone-depleting substances, were also extremely powerful greenhouse gases. Had we continued to use those CFCs, the world would be looking at two degrees C in the rear view mirror at this point. So happily, the world transitioned to alternatives that were safe for the ozone layer. But many of those alternatives are HFCs or hydrofluorocarbons, which although a much lower in terms of their impact on the Earth's climate system are still often powerful greenhouse gases with global warming potentials up to thousands of times that of CO2, the main greenhouse gas. So it's really important that the world came together to agree to phase down these HFCs as well. So while we're focused, rightly, many people would say on CO2, we should also have a focus on these, on HFCs. Absolutely. And, you know, we have the opportunity for a win-win because while companies are in the process of transitioning from HFCs to other alternatives that are 
less harmful to the Earth's climate system, that's also a great opportunity to revisit engineering and design because many of these systems are designed around the refrigerants that they use, often HFCs. So as the world is transitioning to lower global warming potential refrigerants, alternatives to HFCs, it's a great opportunity to look at the efficiency of those products too, and to integrate uh, new designs that can improve the efficiency of air conditioners and other substances and equipment that use these alternatives. I know that was possibly a bit confusing because of all the acronyms, but here's the gist of it. Most air conditioners currently use HFCs as their cooling agents. They're extremely bad for the environment, but they're much better than the gases they've replaced. And they are being phased out. So, are those alternatives that Kristen Tardonio mentioned, are they readily available? Oh, there absolutely are. Yeah, this is a very good news story in that although much of our existing equipment does use HFCs, there are new alternatives that either don't use HFCs or that use HFCs with a much lower global warming potential. What efforts and agreements have been put in place to try and phase out HFCs over time? Well, the one that is the star of the show is a treaty amendment called the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol on Substances that Deplete the Ozone Layer. And that was agreed in 2016. And actually, Australia played a leading role in helping get international negotiators to agree this treaty. Uh, Now, what it does is it says that globally, the world is going to phase down, not completely out, but phase down the use of hydrofluorocarbons on a global warming potential weighted basis. So what that means is if I'm a manufacturer of an air conditioner and I'm currently using hydrofluorocarbons, HFCs, I can either move to an HFC with a lower global warming potential or an alternative that is not in kind, not an HFC at all. Is the issue that needs to be addressed, is it about retrofitting, if you like, the systems, the air conditioning systems that are already in operation and have been for various years? I don't think that the world will be retrofitting all existing equipment. While it is true that existing equipment does continue to utilize HFCs, there are ways to minimize those emissions without forcing everybody to uh, switch refrigerants that's being used in their existing equipment. One way that we can do that is by making sure that equipment is not leaking. So especially for major, large industrial systems, many governments throughout the world are now starting to mandate uh, monitoring of refrigerant leakage and repair. Grocery stores are often very large sources of refrigerant emissions. So just monitoring and evaluating and making sure that we're repairing those systems when they do start to leak large quantities can do a world of good in reducing emissions from existing equipment. Another step that we can do is make sure that at the end of an air conditioner's life, technicians are not venting that refrigerant to the atmosphere. In many parts of the world, this is still common practice. So if those technicians were simply to recover that refrigerant and take it in to be recycled or reclaimed to a high degree of purity, then those emissions don't wind up in the atmosphere. They don't wind up heating up the planet. And there are major steps that 
leaders around the world can do to assure that we're minimizing those emissions. And actually, Australia has been a leader in making sure <laughs> that we're trying to maximize the amount of refrigerant that's being collected at equipment's end of life. At that same time, we need to focus on making sure that new equipment is using the alternatives and not dependent on these hydrofluorocarbons that are soon to be phased out. So we're starting to see many governments around the world, from the US to Australia to the EU, starting to mandate that new equipment contain alternatives to these high global warming potential gases. Scientists have already been monitoring and reporting that the growth in HFC emissions has slowed and seems to be reaching a turning point. And we believe that that is in response to some of the early interventions, some of the early laws that were implemented throughout the world, encouraging industry to switch to alternatives. So it's truly a good news story. Cooling our homes while trying to minimise the impact on global warming. Kristen Tardonio from the US-based Institute for Governance and Sustainable Development. We also heard today from Ashwat Rahman at UCLA, Dutch architect Sandra Pishik and Brian Motherway of the International Energy Agency. You've been listening to Future Tense. The producer was Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.